In this episode, we have a live recording from the Peers in Philanthropy Forum, where Ronnie Kahn, the CEO and founder of Oz Harvest, addresses the group and talks about how she came to found this amazing organisation, her plans now and for the future. You're listening to Voice for a Worthy Cause. Um, an interesting thing when I'm asked to tell my story because there are many places I could start. You know, I could begin in the end, I could begin in the middle, I could begin in the beginning. But I, I, I will just share with you each time that I tell my story, it doesn't really come out right from the beginning. So it was interesting when you said, oh, in 2004 you went to... I probably haven't said that for so long, Peter, but why don't I just share with you why I started Oz Harvest and where we're at today and why I am blessed, privileged, gifted, and still am in awe every single day and wake up with gratitude every single day that I am in the position that I'm in to do what it is that I do because... There are many things that one can plan in life, many things that are lucky, and, and my life is a combination of both of those things. So, you know, in the last... I started Oz Harvest in 2004, but in 2003 is when I decided to start Oz Harvest, and it took a year to set up. And in the past... 15 years, I've had so many people come to me and say, you have been so lucky. You were in the right place at the right time. And you know what? They're wrong. Starting Oz Harvest was not luck. But there were many things in my life that were luck. And what was lucky was that I was born to the parents that I was born to. I couldn't have planned it. I was really fortunate that those parents were the parents who gave birth to me. The second part, and I'll share why in a minute, the second part of being really, really lucky was that I was born white in apartheid (coughs) South Africa during the apartheid era. I couldn't have planned that. And quite honestly, it was quite a fortunate thing because if you were black, you didn't have the same opportunities that I had. And so that's where I think I was lucky. Starting Oz Harvest was a choice. It wasn't lucky. And so that was a choice that I made without ever understanding the impact it would have either on my life or on anybody else's. So that is the reason that I wake up every day with gratitude, thinking how... I turned my life around and it turned into what it is today. So if I just go back and remark on why I feel so privileged to have been born to the parents I was born to, they actually were not brave or courageous in that they did not fight apartheid. But what they did do was teach me values, which at the time I had no idea I was Those being taught. That actually oh. live on the streets. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to? 
I'm not the CEO cook of one if you are going to do I a video. I think of myself okay. as an expert. We'll just go to this. Start, do that, and then I'll continue. <coughs> okay. I normally start with, I mean, lately, it's be, my talks have started with this, but go to it. It's, it's, it's there, is it? <coughs> I think of myself as an accidental activist. I wanted to find my purpose. Globally, a third of all food is going to waste. And it's inhumane. There are people who could eat this food. What I care about most is making sure that hungry people get surplus food. First, I want to fix it here. Then we'll take it to the world. I was committed to starting a food rescue organisation. Can I please welcome our fearless and occasionally fearsome leader, Ronnie Khan? <laughs> it breaks my heart to do this. Mala, yes. look too closely. It could be going to hungry people. I've done this because government hasn't. They have completely let the people of Australia down. Being a change maker involves roughly many things. I'm filming. I'm filming. Everyone's concerned about the library. There's going to be a little bit of carnage on the way. You are our partner and you're about to scream us. The government stuff really does frustrate. I was ambushed on national TV. And I looked like an idiot because I didn't say what I really thought. Then millions of kids that don't have food. It is moving beyond words. Pitched an idea to get some money and then you turn it into a real thing. Ronnie's got one of the biggest days of my life in the UK with Jamie. Camilla's the patron. We should keep reminding ourselves that great change is happening. It's so addictive when you can see that you can make a difference. It is time to disrupt. I will continue to fight this battle. This will be my life's work. I could never have known what this journey that I was embarking on then would lead me to. There's only one way we're going to change it, and it's one person at a time. I do normally start with that when it comes in the middle. And <laughs> but I guess what I will say about that was in my wildest dreams, I never could have imagined that somebody would make a full feature film. Sorry, I need some water. And it still is incredibly confronting to think that you, know, you take up a screen and that was never my intention when the guys came to me and said we want to make a film about food waste I said that's brilliant because we need as much messaging as we can around some of the challenges we face and then somewhere along the way they came and said you know what a documentary needs a protagonist I said awesome go and find one and they said well we think we have <laughs> and to tell you the truth they followed me around for three years they just were my mates, my friends. They traveled around the world with me because the last three years has been a time of huge expansion. And at no point did I ever think about what was coming out of my mouth 
because we were just all together and then when it came time to making a film, they chose the juicy bits that they thought would be the best and I had to look at the film and say, you've got to be kidding, there is no way that I can... And they said, well, it's not really your film and it's a documentary and we were a fly on the wall. So I'm just sharing with you that it's been a very confronting experience. But that the film was launched a couple of months ago. It was in cinemas for a short period and it's available if anyone would like to see it. So moving away from a film, because that was not part of my life's plan, I was sharing with you that my parents were brave but not brave enough to fight the South African system. They were courageous, they faced their own demons, they faced their own challenges. My dad was in an accident that put him in hospital for two years when I was six. We didn't know if he'd survive. He did, and during that time, my mother had to look after three kids. Why is that important? Because it seems that the role modeling I had I always thought that my mother was the energetic one, which she was, and that she never complained once, and they had to make a living and do what they had to do. But in fact, my father came out of his accident with one stiff leg, one leg in a caliper. He was an architect. He had a car modified to fit to suit him, and he was climbing up and down ladders. So I had two parents who were extraordinary role models. Um, and, and those values that were embedded as I say, were completely subliminal. And I didn't know I was getting them, and I was a spoiled little girl, and it never occurred to me, and it wasn't in my life's plan to one day be uh, running a global organization that rescues food, that impacts lives, that engages with over 2,000 volunteers who come to us for meaning and purpose. That was not part of my plan. In fact, I thought I'd be a postmistress because I really used to like stamping things when I was a little girl. <laughs> you know, what can I say? That never happened either. So I went, I finished school and was really fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go to university in Israel because at the time anyway, my parents was going to be hard to put me through university. And I landed up in Israel, I landed up living on a kibbutz, another value-based system. I didn't actually land up there, I made a choice to go there. I'd been in a youth movement that was very value-driven. And when it came time to finishing school, I had to decide if I would stay in South Africa and fight the system and land up in jail, because at that time that's what the activists did. And I chose to leave again for a whole range of reasons and lived in Israel, lived on kibbutz for 10 years which was a fascinating experience, a beautiful way to share community, understand about community and what's fascinating is in the last 15 years I've been called a social entrepreneur, I've been given every name, I'd never heard the word entrepreneur but Clearly, when I lived on kibbutz, my entrepreneurial spirit came out. Because living on a kibbutz, one lives in community. And one works according to one's ability and gets according to one's need. But even then, clearly, I was a little bit rebellious. Because living on the kibbutz, I didn't like the shop where we would go, where women would go for the clothing. There was a very limited range 
and terribly boring. And we're talking about the 70s, and I went into Tel Aviv and found a beautiful boutique selling gorgeous Indian boho clothes that today are very fashionable, but then were very fashionable too. And I took a whole lot on consignment and brought them back for the women on our kibbutz. And so clearly my full spirit of community <laughs> and living according to one's needs meant that I wasn't fully suited to living on a kibbutz. <laughs> which led me to leave the kibbutz without changing it. So at that point in time, I didn't believe that a society that was working really well needed me to change it. It was a case of me not fitting into that society. And so I moved on and lived in the city in, in Israel. And at, as we were leaving kibbutz, my, my brother-in-law bought a florist, and after a week he said, I don't know what I was thinking. So he gave it to my sister, who said, I don't know what to do with it. I had just left kibbutz. Turns out I'm artistic, and I seem to be good at business. And I went into the florist, and we ran the florist really well for the next eight years until I knew that for a whole range of reasons it was time for me to leave Israel. And I often say that, in fact, coming here, I landed in the promised land because I came here at a time that even though we came with no money and with two kids, we came at a time where if you put your head down and your butt up, you could work and you could make a living and you could do okay. And that's really what happened. The only thing I wasn't ever going to do was go back into a florist. I came here in January. And coming from Israel, coming from the Middle East, the festivals are very different to the festivals that you have here. And whilst looking for work in whatever I could, florist ads kept popping up. Like thousands of florists needed florists. I thought the floral industry must be the biggest industry in Australia <laughs> in January. And what I didn't know when I took a job in a florist, because it just seemed like it was, that's what I'd need to do in the first week in February. What I didn't know was that the 14th of February is the biggest day in the floral <laughs> calendar in Australia being Valentine's Day. And I was fired on the 15th. They just needed as many florists as you could get your hands on for the busiest day of the year. But I touched a flower, and it didn't take long before I had three florists. And it didn't take long before having built up my business, people started saying to me, so what else can you do when, I, when they'd walk in to buy flowers for their wedding? So I would like to take responsibility and I will own the fact that you can blame me for chair covers, for <laughs> draping ceilings, because it was the very early days of the event industry. And when people said to me, what can you do? I said, I can do whatever you need. And I built a business in the event industry. I sold my florists and had a boutique event management company. And I'm normally in a room where I've either done somebody's wedding, bar mitzvah, corporate event. In fact, who was I talking to? Oh, yeah, I had 
a corporate come in this week to us harvest where they brought the 50 of their staff as part of their meaningful for purpose day and turns out that I did the son's bar mitzvah 30 something years ago so if I, if I did any of your events I'm thrilled thank you and reached that point in my life we're matching purple napkins to purple ta uh, chair covers to purple draping, started feeling a little inane. <coughs> and I started looking around and wondering really what my purpose was. And it couldn't have been just to mark a unique moment in the life of an individual or a company, to leave them with beautiful memories, to put food on my table, which by now I had a table and I had a roof over my head, and I have two beautiful, healthy sons, and I wanted to know what more there was. And at my events, one of the things that I was quite famous for was that nobody left my events and had to go to Macca's on the way home. My events, the tables groaned, because food is about dignity, food is about sharing, food is about abundance and generosity. And it was a beautiful way for me to showcase my, my clients to their guests and show that they were successful. And so at end, every one of my events, there was food left over. Now for years, that food just went to waste. And that's the truth. Events start at 3 in the morning. They often finish at 3 at night. And I was so busy building the business that that was one of the collateral pieces of damage at my events. But I started reaching a point, looking around at my events, trying to add value to my events, that I wondered, wow, this, this is insane. This is crazy. And so what I started doing was when I could, I would just fill my car with food that was left over and I drop it off at the one agency I knew on my way home which was the Matthew Talbot home which hostel which was right behind the Porsche and the Ferrari and the Maserati dealers on William Street and I'd arrived there late at night in my red sports car because at that point those were the measures of success for me and I'd step out of my car step over the bodies and deliver some food until I reached that point that I felt I wanted more and I started reflecting on my life I started reflecting on my values started reflecting on what was meaningful to me and I started thinking about the trajectory and the journey of my life and my life in Australia had been that when we came we came with nothing and when we went to buy our first house we could scrounge together 175k, which makes you know how long ago that was, because I just got an ad in my post box this week that I could buy a garage in Bondi for 175k <laughs> if I wanted. So we could scrounge together 175k. And the funny thing is that when I went to look at houses, the house I really wanted then was 275 but I didn't have the money. And then a few years later, we had put together a little bit more money. We had done a little bit better. 
and we now had 300,000 to go and buy a house, but funnily enough, the one I wanted was 450. And so it went on, and I reached that point 15 years ago that although it's hard to n see that I ever think that one could have enough jewelry, I started wondering about what it was that makes me happy and how much more I could have and how I couldn't really be in more than one room at a time. Couldn't really wear more than one pair of shoes at a time, but that still takes convincing. <laughs> that I just had lost those core values because I'd put my head down and was so convinced that what I needed was money to make me secure. And it's true, we do need money, but it's just how much do we need and then what do we do with our money? And so I started thinking about what it was that I could do more of in my life. And it's an interesting thing because it's at this point that when I mentor people or when, and I have thousands of people who come and speak with me and share how they're looking for purpose and meaning. And often purpose and meaning is right under our noses but we don't always know it because sometimes we come across a problem, but we often just say, why doesn't somebody else fix that problem? And in my case, my problem was I had food left over, and I didn't know what to do with it, and nobody else was going to come and collect that food and take it somewhere. So I figured that I would do that. And in truth, I didn't know at that time that... $20 billion worth of food was going to waste a year in Australia. I didn't know then that 3 million people in Australia suffer from food insecurity or need food relief, and today that is 4 million people. I didn't know then that a third of all food globally goes to waste, that 1.3 billion tons of food globally goes to waste. All I thought was, I'd rescue the food, I'd tell my colleagues and all of us in the food hospitality industry that we should rescue our food and I'd collect it and I'd give it to the few agencies that I by now knew existed. There wasn't a data base of agencies. When I thought I'd do this, I went to the local council and they said, oh, well, we can tell you one or two that work in our council. And then I had to go to Coogee if I wanted to know what was happening there and I had to go to Randwick if I wanted to know what was happening there. And so Oz Harvest was born. The first, when I, what galvanized me into action, and often we do need a light bulb moment, I'd been thinking about it, was a trip back to South Africa. I hadn't been back to South Africa since Mandela had been released. I hadn't been back to South Africa. My family had since left. But we had friends there and still have friends there that I was with last week, well, until Sunday, um, who I just knew were the kind of family friends that I could just go to. I thought, I'll just, I'll just visit them while I'm thinking about what to do and how to do it, but my business was thriving, and I certainly wasn't about to give up my business, which I didn't give up 
until seven years into the growth of Oz Harvest, because I never started Oz Harvest because I was either bored or rich. I started Oz Harvest because I wanted to find meaning. And I visited South Africa, and my most favorite beautiful girlfriend um, said, well, you're going to come with me to Soweto. Now, when I lived in South Africa, you couldn't visit Soweto. Soweto was a very scary place in, in a growing up white person's life during the apartheid era. It was a shanty town that was filled with violence and crime and shattered people trying to make a living, trying to survive. And when she said, we're going to go to Soweto, it was like, how do I do that? I was really scared, but it's a new South Africa. And we were going to South Africa, to Soweto, because she was an activist. And I knew she'd been an activist and a change maker, but I didn't know the details of what it was she had done. And she said we were going to go to Soweto to visit an AIDS clinic she'd set up because she knew that she had to educate women about AIDS because women share the message with their friends, their colleagues, and so that would be the way of amplifying education around AIDS as opposed to the way the government in South Africa was not sharing information about AIDS. But as we drove into Soweto, Selma, very quietly, under her breath, said, I, I was responsible for electricity in Soweto. And when she said that, the hairs on my arm stood up because there were three million people living in Soweto. And I just wondered what the impact, what it felt like to know that you'd made that kind of an impact. And at that moment, I knew that I would start this organization that I'd been dreaming about. And I came back like a woman possessed, and it very clearly seems that it's never left me, and I still am a woman possessed. And that was the beginning of Oz Harvest. And when I decided to start it, I was running my business full time, and I knew that I would need some seed funding. And somebody suggested I go and see the Macquarie Foundation. So I'll just share with you that first meeting, because I'd never asked for money. I'd never knew how to raise money. All I knew was that I was going to rescue food and deliver it to people in need, because I knew that there was food. And I was given that open door to two people to meet. The one was the Macquarie Foundation, and the other was Macquarie Goodman at the time, Greg Goodman's foundation, which, is, which wasn't a foundation. Fifteen years ago, only Macquarie had a foundation. Nobody else did. There was just money. You were just asking people for money. And so that first meeting with Julie White, I walked in and I said, my name's Ronnie Khan, and I'm here to tell you that I'm going to start a food rescue organization, and I want your help. <laughs> And she said, and what is it going to look like? I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to get a truck and I'm going to deliver the food that I know is there to the people that I know need it. She said, oh, very interesting. That's wonderful. I said, yep, it is. And off I walked thinking and telling everybody, Macquarie thinks it's wonderful and I'm getting money from Macquarie. And she called me two days later and said, what the hell are you doing? I, sa I said, what do you mean? She said, you're telling people that I'm going to give you money. 
I said, but you told me you loved the idea and you thought it was wonderful. Doesn't that mean you're going to give me money? <laughs> she said, well, I might, but I haven't told you yet that I'm going to. <laughs> anyway, a few weeks later, she called and I got seed funding from Macquarie, which, of course, opened millions of doors. But the second one was, she said, go and see Macquarie Goodman. I said, because when she said, so what are you going to need? I said, I'm going to need an office. She said, well, go and see Macquarie Goodman because they have industrial sites. So I walked into a boardroom like this where there were 12 men in black suits sitting like this. And again, I walked in and I said, my name's Ronnie Khan and I'm here to tell you I'm going to start a food rescue organization. And Greg put up his hand. He said, so stop. What do you want from me? I said, well, my office is in Alexandria. And so what I'd like is a little office right near you, right near my office, because I don't want to run my charity from my office. And, and if you could give me an office, that would be amazing. And he said, okay. Like, it took five minutes. And he said, I, I was about to walk out the door, and he said, so what else do you want? And I hadn't really come prepared to ask for anything more, but I knew that I needed a truck. I said, well, I'm going to need a truck. He said, okay, I'll give you one. And he said, what else do you want? I said, two trucks? <laughs> he said, yes. And I said, I'm out of here. Bye. And I walked out with an office and two trucks. And the rest is history. The rest is down the track, we've just delivered our 100 millionth meal from good food that would otherwise have gone to waste. We're in every state other than Tassie. Um, and we have spread our organization globally because we have a model that is duplicable, replicable, and there is good food going to waste everywhere. We are the United Nations Environmental Programs partner. and. I guess an example of an organization that has built a very significant brand and quite honestly the last thing I ever knew that I was doing or intended to do, well the intention part is not right. I always intended if I was doing this to do it in the most impactful way that I could but I certainly didn't intend to build a brand as such. And clearly that is what Oz Harvest has built. It's recognizable. Peter comes in wearing a yellow cap. I'm very thrilled with that. And we now have Harvest Yellow as a registered color. So I think that's pretty cool. But really it's about our impact. When we started, my intention was to rescue food and to feed hungry people. And once I realized the scale of the problem, I knew that I hadn't set us up. I hadn't set up Oz Harvest to be the biggest food rescue organization globally or in Australia. What I really wanted to do was to solve problems and to put an end to an issue I didn't just intend to perpetuate, which is what puts us in a very different position to any of the other food banks or food organizations, either in Australia or globally. So from a very early stage, our, our purpose changed to become, our purpose is to nourish our country, and we do that in four ways. We rescue, we educate, we engage, and we innovate. Rescue is what you all see and know. 60 vehicles on the road, refrigerated vehicles, rescuing food, a fleet of vehicles, rescuing food, refrigerated vehicles, working with the food industry and anywhere in the supply chain to deliver food 
from over 3,500 food donors to over 1,500 charitable organizations around Australia. That is core to what we do, and we will do that all the time that there is surplus food, that in the hierarchy of food waste, good food should first go and feed individuals before it goes anywhere else, as in to landfill. But it became very clear to me that if there are 3 million vulnerable people, or now 4 million vulnerable people, I need to do something to upskill them, and I need to do something to minimize food waste. And so our education platform was born, and there are five programs under our education pillar. And the first, just you have to tell me about time because I get completely lost with time and I could just keep talking. So no, if you need good. me to shut up, tell me. Um, and so very briefly, our education program, we, we target vulnerable people. We have a program that is, goes out to the charitable organizations we support to teach both the chefs or the cooks as well as their clients, our customers, how to live a sustainable life, how to cook nutritional food, how to purchase and how not to waste food. That program's called NEST. It's been measured by Bain & Co. that it's social value, it's social return on investment. For every dollar invested in us, it's $9.73 back to community. It's incredibly powerful. There are very few organizations that have a nine-fold return on investment and I'm sure some of you would love that some of your shares and stocks had that kind of return on investment. Uh, we then created a program that takes vulnerable youth between 15 and 25 and puts them through hospitality training to shift and change their lives, to upskill them. These kids walk into our space with their heads down and no eye contact when they walk through the door because nobody has ever believed in them. Nobody has ever said they could succeed. They've fallen through the cracks. They've fallen out of the, the education system because they've had no role models. These are kids of parents who are, have never succeeded. And within six months, because of life mentoring skills, because of providing them a home and a family and a safe place and a cert one and two in hospitality, they leave, they stand at their graduation and say that we have opened a door that they never even knew was there. And if you want to know what still motivates me today, if you look at the Jewish values of either tikkun olam, which is repairing the world, or if you have saved the life of one person, then you have saved the world. That is the program that motivates me, that gets me up every single day thrilled, excited, motivated, and filled with gratitude to do what it is that I do. We have just launched a program that's going into years five and six. It's called FEAST. It is curriculum ready, national curriculum ready, part of the STEM program to teach. So when you ask me about do I think kids should be demonstrating, yes, I do, but they should be getting the education to understand how to change their lives and how to be live in this world and value food. Our food system is broken and we need all of us to understand the value of food, which unfortunately all of us have experienced at some point somebody saying to them, eat your food because there's someone starving somewhere, am I right? Mm -hmm. Part of the universal, my universal truth. 
I will share with you that my mother told me, so remember I was born in South Africa, my mother told me there were people starving in China. I could have taken my peas across the road, but seriously, you know, we, we all like to put it somewhere else. And so I, we have to start with education somewhere and it's not part of the curriculum. And so our feast program we're incredibly proud of. We've just piloted in four schools and it's rolling out from May, um, as I say, into years five and six. It's an online program in that it's hands-on. We teach teachers how to deliver this and the whole purpose is to roll it out to teachers across the country so that they can deliver this and scale it and amplify it. Um, and our most important program now is the Fight Food Waste Movement to get each and every one of us, and I'm probably talking to the converted, and I do know that none of this food will go to waste, that there's a team of people waiting to eat it, otherwise I'll be taking it with me. <laughs> but if we all need to shift and change our behavior, and shifting and changing behavior is one of the hardest things to get across. So we're working with behavioral scientists and we're working with universities and behavioral logistics to create a program that we can, again, train the trainer, cascade out into the community and, and um, amplify how we should minimize food waste. Um, we, me, Oz Harvest, went to Canberra. Thanks to us, Australia is committed to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals 12.3 to halve food waste by 2030. Our government has been pathetic, and it's now 2019. And yes, there's a steering committee, and I'm on it, but the pace they're working at is too slow. And so we're working on how to fast track this. And I this week visited both sides of, um, I'm hedging my bets. I visited the Minister of the Environment and the Shadow Minister for the Environment with plans for both of them so that we can amplify our program. So lobbying and being an activist is definitely part of what, where, where I see the role of Oz Harvest and very excitingly um, to shift the dial. Now everything we do is philanthropically funded. We've had very little funding from government because I didn't have the time to wait for government when I started Oz Harvest and nor am I prepared to rely on government because governments change, grants come in, grants come out, you see charities all the time being so dependent on government funding. So our funding comes from philanthropists, from foundations, from trusts, from high net worth individuals, and from our own social enterprises and revenue streams that we've created. Um, I'll just go quickly to the engagement piece and our biggest engagement piece. And I guess it could also fit under the innovation piece. And I will share with you that the innovation pillar exists so that I could go to my board and say, you know all of those beautiful ideas I've always got? Well, they're innovative. Let's have an innovation piece so that I can actually activate them. And I'm very fortunate to have a board that fully supports me. So when I want to open a free supermarket, they love the idea. 
And I don't know if any of you have visited our free supermarket. I'm sure that maybe you have because it's right next to Thread Together. And if you haven't, you should have. Um, but it is really the first, the world's very first fully free supermarket. Take what you need, give if you can. And it's a beautiful ethos, and I could, I'll, I'll talk more about that. But in our biggest engagement piece, on the 25th of March, so that's next Monday night, is the CEO cook-off. Have any of you heard of the CEO cook-off? Sure. Awesome. Well, this year we will have, we've probably got over 200 participants already. We would still be happy to have up to 300 business leaders. So the, the, coming from the event industry, and you mentioned, somebody mentioned here tonight gala dinners and gala events. I don't do gala dinners. I don't do gala events. I do experiential events. And the CEO cook-off is the embodiment of an experiential event. I figured, how do I get those people that I want to engage with who I would who who either donate money to us or in order to raise a significant amount of money in one big hit how do I get to engage with people I need to give them an experience so this event on Monday night the 25th of March has 50 of Australia's top chefs that's from Neil Perry to Matt Moran to Guillaume to all of the names you know who give me their time for free. I will build 50 pop-up kitchens on Monday the 24th of March for this event on Monday night. The 300 of our business leaders, in the lead-up to the event, we ask them to fundraise for us. We ask each leader to raise at least 10K because... This year, I set our goal at $3 million to raise on the 25th of March. Um, I'll, in a minute, Henrietta will tell us where we are at today, and I will <laughs> suggest you look what happens in the next 10 days, but in a minute. But on the night, why is this night so magical? Why is it an experience? Why is it humbling, and why is it actually a spiritual experience? because the CEOs cook without <coughs> chefs, but on the night our guests are 1,400 of our customers, our clients, the vulnerable people of Sydney who are treated like VIPs, treated with respect, treated with dignity, and it is their night. The night is about giving our people an, exp an experience. I can tell you that on the 26th of March, when I walk down George Street, I will have people stop me and say, so when is next year's event? Because people spend a year waiting for this event. This week, I go out on the streets to invite them to hand out invitations. Obviously, we do that also through all the charitable organizations we support. But our people dress up. They get, it, it is their night and it is an exquisite night. So I'm here to share with you, if you haven't heard about the event, and you, we have got leaders still signing up, so if any of you want to participate, we are here to say, open for registration. 
Um, I'm also sure Henrietta was cheeky enough to bring a square, so if you want to donate to me or to any of our business leaders, please feel free. I'm just being cheeky, <laughs> but, but that's my job. I'm not scared. Somebody yesterday uh -huh. said to me, so Ronnie, tell me, what is it like? How did you learn to ask for Oz Harvest? And the interesting thing is, if you had to say to me, ask for something for Ronnie Khan, Seriously, I wouldn't know how to do that. But put me in front of people, and I have no compunction asking because our impact is what drives our income. A hundred million meals we've delivered from good food that have gone to waste. Over 200 youth we've put through our program and given them a new life. We've delivered over 1,500 of those NEST programs to charitable organizations. Those are the figures that Peter was talking about. And it's true this year, I didn't print an annual report, so I can't leave you with an annual report. But if you see a vehicle driving around, we printed our annual report onto one of our vehicles so that you can see and read it on one of our vehicles. So that very last, so the CEO cook-off is coming up. Um, I think I'm on around $60,000. I have a few angels who feel that I should be up there on the leaderboard. Um, I always, my job this week is to phone every person participating and say, take me on, overtake me. I do not want to be the highest fundraiser. You guys are in the corporate world. You guys are in the money world. You, you have much more access to money than I do. Um, so we will see what happens in the next... 10 days, but I think, what are we on this morning? We've just ticked over to 1.2 Amazing. So Fantastic. that is amazing. And I don't know if we'll reach 3 million by the, on the night of the 25th. But I figured, I figured that if I, last year I set my goal at 2 million, and we were probably 10 days out, we were probably on about 800,000. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, it was kind of like, oh my God, Henrietta and I were like, okay, what are we going to do? The point is the next 10 days is when all the action takes place, when our business leaders really kick in, and when the wonderful people around the world, because I have one CEO whose claim to fame, apart from being one of the highest fundraisers, he raises about 70 or $75,000, but he gets it from 45 countries. He puts his ask out to everybody, and he just loves that people from around the world support him. This morning I was at Atlassian talking, and I think I spoke, I think there were nine different countries that were, thanks to the tech of Atlassian, um, were supporting their team because Atlassian just signed up this week. So people are still signing up. It's still possible. If you know anybody who you think should be at that event, we would be thrilled to have them. And the truth is, if all 300 raise 10K, we would easily reach 3 million. But not everybody does. There will be people who only raise two, but there will be people who raise 50, 70, and 100. So... It's a bit like watching the pokies or in the next week, our leaderboard. And for any of you who haven't seen the front page of the Fin Review, because I figured 
business leaders are a type competitive and that if I gave them the opportunity to be on the front page of the Fin Review, they would want to be there. So the only way you can be there is if you're in the top three. So watch that space. Um, and that's really where we're at and what's happening to us this week. But each and every day, it's about how can we impact more people? How can we do ourselves out of business? How can we teach more people not to waste food? How can we get more businesses involved? We've made thousands of businesses more efficient, more effective, and there's still many more to go. And we've engaged with, as I say, we, we, we are a place of purpose and meaning for many people. And I am personally blessed and privileged and I'm going to end by actually reading you something that I came across this week that I think is so divine that I just would love to share with all of you. If I can find it, it just seems to have disappeared, but I will find it. Give me one minute. Um, I read it yesterday. Okay, so um, very recently an Israeli author called Amos Oz passed away, uh, a real hero of mine, um, a, an exquisite author but a believer in peace, a believer in, a, in, in the possibilities for the Middle East for two nations to live together and thrive together and his passing is a huge tragedy for us because he kept that torch burning about what was possible. But I came across this that he wrote and I'd like to share it with all of you. I believe that if one person is watching a huge calamity, let's say a conflagration, a fire, there are always three principal options of action. The first one, run away as far away and as fast as you can and let those who cannot run burn. The second option, write a very angry letter to the editor of your paper demanding that the responsible people be removed from office with disgrace, or for that matter, launch a demonstration. Number three, bring a bucket of water and throw it on the fire. And if you don't have a bucket, bring a glass. And if you don't have a glass, use a teaspoon. Everyone has a teaspoon. And yes, I know a teaspoon is little and the fire is huge, but there are millions of us and each one of us has a teaspoon. Now, I would like to establish the order of the teaspoon. People who share my attitude, not the runaway attitude or the letter attitude, but the teaspoon attitude, I would like them to walk around wearing a little teaspoon in the lapel of their jacket so that we know that we are the same movement, in the same brotherhood, in the same order, the order of the teaspoon. <laughs> and I normally would have a teaspoon in my hand, but I didn't have enough for all of you. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Look, I am conscious of time. We've probably got time for maybe one or two very quick questions before I ask Graham to provide a vote of thanks to Ronnie and to our hosts, if, if there are any. 
Okay. Yes. All right. If you had to <coughs> start again, uh, what areas would you have done differently or changed in, the, in your incredible journey? Yeah, so I have a model that is free. We collect food for free. We deliver food for free. And that's a challenge when you're now running a $15 million business and have to raise $15 million to deliver on my impact. So what I might do differently was implement a way of the food donors who I knew initially wouldn't give us food because I hadn't changed the laws then. It took time to change laws to have food being able to give away for free, which we did. I think I would implement a cost structure because currently I'm subsidizing many of the businesses that we collect food from and it's quite hard to get them to change their ways and to pay for that service. So I think I would do that differently, somewhat differently. But, you know, other than that, I, I guess my first board was a challenge. I didn't know what a board was. So I've done that differently in the past. And when people come to me and say, we're going to start a charity, I say, let's start with your board. Don't bring your uncles, your cousins, your aunts, and the people you know around you just because you think that, you know. So I've learned a lot. Yeah. Okay. Four million hungry people in Australia is yeah. a huge number. It's obscene. Obscene. How, how do we get those statistics? We get them because... How, are you asking why people fall through the cracks, or are you asking if those statistics are accurate? I'm not questioning your no, statistics. No, no. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's, it's appalling. Look, people fall through the cracks for a whole lot of reasons, Peter. It could be, you know, I know people who were just like me, who went through a divorce, stress-related, made them lose their job, spiraled down, couldn't get a job again, lost their friends, lost their self-confidence, and landed somewhere that they never, ever expected. So we do have people who, for a whole range of reasons, have fallen through the cracks. And we're not addressing and not offering enough services to get them out of that position. What we do is we perpetuated by providing minimal, minimal, and in some ways, I, I'm not trying to offend anybody, everybody, all of us are doing our best, but, our, but we haven't addressed the root causes in trying to solve them. You know, if you just look at housing, there are people who don't have housing, and yet there's enough houses, there are enough places that we could put people in. So they're just a whole range. It's complex, it's complicated, and it, it is fixable, but it takes a lot of money and a lot of energy, and yet we're wasting $20 billion on food waste. So it's about redirecting money, it's about redirecting education. There are just lots of ways that that could be solved.